0: And welcome to the Reverend Hunter podcast. This is Tony Jones. I'm the Reverend Hunter, joined as always by the flounder to my aerial Brandon.
1: <laughs> you know what? We're bringing it back to the old Disney movies of my oh, youth. Oh, well, I, I, I do. Find- I do recognize this one. So that's see, cool. often I say something, and you'll be like, "Never saw that one." <laughs> <laughs> to, to be fair, I was kind of forced to watch *The Little Mermaid* as a youth, so uh, I did
0: see okay, it. Okay, so I'm starting to I'm starting to home in on your pop culture sweet spot. Disney yeah, think, movies. Think think anything 1980ish on
1: up, then I, then I'll be all right. Okay. And I say 80ish because I was a kid in the 80s.
0: So we should get into like the Lethal Weapon movies and kind of like that genre.
1: Heck yeah, that's okay. what action movies were king back in the day.
0: I agree, man. I agree. Yep. I'm. Uh, what are you watching right now? By the way, what honestly watch
1: anything, or don't I, you have time? I haven't had time as of late to watch a whole lot Dang. of anything. I re, me and my partner, we rewatched The Wire uh, just a couple weeks ago. Okay,
0: seasons awesome. one through Three,
1: the solid first three seasons.
0: Oh yeah. my god, that show! Okay, on that same note, I am rewatching The Sopranos. Oh, the really? Kiddington. See, that's what I hadn't gotten into, but I'm I'm very curious. It's so good, man. It it just it changed TV for. I've been reading all these books about writing fiction, um, and screenplays and stuff, and so many of them refer to The Sopranos as that's the Sopranos changed television forever. And you know, it used to be that movies had the complex, nuanced characters and TV. TV characters were kind of like flat. Right. um, You know, either in dramas or comedies. And then with The Sopranos and HBO, you know, and then The Wire was obviously a big part of that. And then we get Mad Men, Breaking Bad. And, you know, a lot of those writers who ended up like Matthew Wiener, um, who made Breaking Bad, he was a writer for The Sopranos. And the guy who made madman was a writer for the sopranos so that was just a groundbreaking show and now you've got all these you know tv dramas that are so um have so many complex characters and you've got movies with just these like cardboard cutout uh you know super superhero action characters
1: and, and, and to think it was on the time before Netflix and stuff where you could binge watch shows because, you know, shows of the Sopranos or the Wire Elk are really good for binge watching TV because they're really enthralling and engaging. And it was still so big before that even existed.
0: Right. I mean, they even lived on that. I mean, it's, it's similar to the binge thing, but it's like you cannot wait till next Sunday night when the next Sopranos comes out because, oh my gosh, the cliffhanger at the end of the last episode, you know.
1: Good old water cooler talk.
0: Yeah, exactly. Back when there were water coolers and people <laughs> talked. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. well, uh, I'm going to be in a hunting TV show. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's called The Flush. Well, The Flush, eh? I, I'm, I'm not completely familiar. <laughs> I am going to be, uh, this shows you how desperate Scott Franzen is for content <laughs> for his television show. He's going hunting with me. <laughs> uh, no tony it's it's got to be because you you bring a good story that's what it is. i think it'll be a good story scott it's gonna be such a joy to hunt with scott because he's like one of the nicest guys i've ever met um and he's gonna join me and a, a couple of my buddies in south dakota um this weekend and into next week and we're gonna film and then uh it'll be a it'll be an episode of the flush television show on the outdoor channel next fall. And then about this time next year, late, you know, mid to late January, it will be released. If they follow the same schedule they're following this year, then that episode will be on YouTube free to stream, um, a year from now. So that's the funny, one of the funny things about TV as opposed to podcasting is it takes a long time to, you know, to, to get that content out to people, it takes a, it's a long process of editing it and adding the music and the voiceover and stuff like that. So it'll be a while, but people can, you know, sit on the edge of their chairs and wait for that episode to come out.
1: So we still have a good half of a year left of having you on the podcast before you become a
0: big TV star is what you're saying. It's so funny because okay. yeah. because when we were talking about what we're gonna film, I'm like, well, actually, I'd really like to interview my buddy Jorge on my podcast. Can we do that while we're out there? And Scott's like, oh yeah, then we can, th- then we can promote your podcast by filming you making a podcast. <laughs> so there you go. I think they gave me a flush uh baseball cap, but I think I'm gonna put a piece of duct tape over the flush logo and write the Reverend Hunter on it. <laughs> <laughs> that would that would look great on TV. I think so too. So then uh th- that's coming up, which will be fun. And then um later this month, I mean sorry, later in February, mid-February at Pheasant Fest, I'm sure you'll be there oh, recording yeah. recording episodes. I have been asked to give the invocational prayer at the banquet. Wow. (laughs) How about that? Not bad at all. I haven't uh, given an invocational prayer since the Cub Scout Blue and Gold dinner, I don't think. So it's been a while. (laughs) Wow. Well, this will be good. This will be fun. Oh, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. It was very nice of Bob St. Pierre. Uh, He's the host of the Pheasants Forever podcast. And he's been a, a guest on this podcast and on the flush, etc. He asked me, so that was that was super nice. Yeah,
1: that's really nice. Yeah, Bob's a cool guy. Yeah, and then I think we're gonna get you out uh, to a game farm, right? That's what the plan, maybe roughly, kinda is. We'll see. <laughs> I mean, I we'll see. Well, I'm yeah. gonna
0: make it happen, bro. I yeah. <laughs> All right. If I'm... I have to like drive to Scott's house and 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 Travis's house and drag them out of their beds. Into my truck and drive you us all down to the Horse and Hunt Club. We're doing it.
1: All right. Well, then I guess I, I have no choice but to be doing it. No, I'm I'm kind of yeah, looking forward it. to it. Um, I spoke with uh, Modern Carnivore uh, yesterday, and uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. we're gonna, we're gonna try to get me into some of those classes. So yeah, Mark Norquist, nice. Modern, Modern Carnivore is going to help me along with, uh, my, my hunting. Progress. Fantastic. Yeah.
0: He's actually going to be my get, he's my plus one at the banquet cause they gave me f- two free tickets. Oh, that's great. So he's my plus one. Yeah. He's a, he's a dear friend. That's fantastic, man. Yeah. Well, also fantastic is my conversation that, uh, is part of the podcast this week. Uh, Peyton Hoig, he, uh, he is a. We have a mutual friend who's an Episcopal priest, and she told me about him and his work. And I looked him up, and it's very intriguing. He uh, started, uh, I guess you'd call it a, a faith community, not a church in any traditional sense. Uh, it's called All Wanderers, and they basically have take spiritual hikes in Southern California. Um, and it's pretty intriguing what he's doing. It's it's not easy work. I mean, he admits in the course of our con, uh, conversation, it, he says it's definitely been a struggle and it has been, but he's doing great work and he's recently joined the team uh, at the um, the Center for Spirituality and Nature, where he coordinates their spiritual communities around the country and I think probably around the globe of other similar organizations. Um, faith-based communities that are finding their spiritual practices out in nature. So we have a great conversation um we we talk a little bit about process theology so if that's your thing or if you're interested in theology be sure you stay tuned toward the end of our hour together and uh he talks a bit about that and it's it's uh it it's a it's a version of of protestant theology that several of my friends are really into so it was great to have that conversation with him and i think people really like it and i think it's uh you know i think a future of american spirituality is going to be people who do stuff outdoors hey peyton thanks thanks for coming on the reverend hunter podcast really appreciate you being here
2: all right tony thanks for having me appreciate the invitation
0: Let's first just talk about our mutual friend Holly for a second. Holly's Love totally Holly. awesome. Holly went to Italy with me uh, on a tour I led last September, and I've know, i mean, I knew I've known her for many years through uh, Trip Fuller and Claremont. But obviously, when you spend ten days with somebody in a foreign country, you really get to know them, and um, she's amazing.
2: She is. She's really incredible. Uh, I had the pleasure of working with her at a church in Hollywood here and really, really important spiritual mentor for me, somebody who really has encouraged me to kind of explore my faith, explore my ministry and press boundaries whenever I can and always appreciative of her for that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, a shout out to Holly. Um, Hopefully she's listening. Love you, Holly. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, um, well, I'd love to hear about your journey. And I mean, I definitely want to get into the organization you work for now and, um, the work you've done, because I think, uh, in the, you know, Venn diagram of interests, you and I share a lot of interests in basically connecting people and their spirituality with outdoors, um, Absolutely. Well, instead of just diving right into the deep end of the pool, let's let's start in the let's let's wade in, and tell me a little bit about yourself, uh, where and how you grew up. Leave you know when it, it, where I, I was t- I was told when I was in seminary in Southern California, a few miles north of Claremont, at a place called Fuller. Nice. Um, and they did not speak highly of Claremont when I was there. <laughs> so I'm sorry to say. Undoubtedly. Uh, so, Yeah, I mean, I remember, this is such a tangent for listeners who are not into this kind of thing, but I don't really care. It's funny, man, um, at Fuller, I took History of the American Church, Mm -hmm. and um, I think we spent maybe 30 minutes over the course of an entire academic term, maybe we spent 30 minutes on process theology. Wow. If that, I mean, it might have been 15. And, you know, and there was kind of like a, oh, yeah, an hour south of here is like the one place that uh, teaches process theology, Claremont. And they kind of looked down their noses at it. Of course, as evangelicals (laughs) did um, in the 90s, I I bet if I went to an American church history class at Fuller now, I mean, I don't know. I would hope they would treat Claremont and process theology with a little more respect than that.
2: Uh, probably, comparatively. <laughs> uh, the years tend to, to make changes like that for us, but no, I'm not surprised. Uh, Claremont is a special place. It's got a really particular theology that we kind of view things t- uh, as a lens through. Yeah, And I, I'm really, really glad that I chose Claremont for my seminary education. and And I'd say not least because of the process focus. It really connects well, I think, with how I view my own spirituality, but particularly yeah. how I can connect spirituality with ecology and, you know, process really offers some interesting avenues for exploring that.
0: Yeah, let's, so let's circle back to that uh, down the road a, a bit, because I do want to talk about that, um, I, I, and I think you're right, um, but how'd you get there? Where, where'd you come from?
2: How'd you get there? Yeah, that's going back to the origin stories. Um, So I I was raised in Southeast Virginia, uh, kind of split time between Newport News area and uh, my folks were split. So I was born in Iowa, so I split time between those two states. So kind of the marshy backwoods of Southeast Virginia and the cornfields of Iowa. So strong grounding and, and being outside and spending a lot of time. trekking through the woods and ravines near my house in Virginia and working in the fields in Iowa in the summers and Mm -hmm. so that's kind of what really grounded me with a love of nature and you know I grew up in a Southern Baptist family and so was raised in that tradition with a really distinct way of thinking about God and my own faith
3: mm-hmm.
2: and fell away from the Baptist church in my adolescence and particularly in college. I went to an evangelical university in in Virginia as well. and didn't have the best experience just because I was on a a journey of discovery with my own faith understandings and Mm -hmm. didn't always feel embraced in the questions that I was asking and the conclusions I was coming to. And so fell away from, from my own kind of Christian faith for some time, but slowly found my way back. I made my way to Los Angeles where I live now after my undergraduate education Doing a year of service here in LA with uh, the Episcopal Urban Intern Program, and
3: you know okay. that year of
2: service and that connection and introduction to the Episcopal Church was really just an entry point back into my really intentional relationship with God. Did and you kind of did you, structure? Did you
0: jump into the event? I mean, sorry, the Episcopal Church. Um was it only be, was it simply because that they were offering that kind of service thing or did the episcopal aspect of that service
2: organization appeal to you yeah i as a, any good southern baptist you know the only denomination was right. was our own and so i i had no understanding of of the the anglican tradition or the episcopal church and And so I really had to learn as I was in that experience, what the Episcopal Church stood for, how it approached its faith, what values it held. And it really resonated with me in so many ways that, you know, the Southern Baptist Church no longer did. And so it it really allowed me to come back to God in a way that no other tradition had. Hmm. And, And that was something I'm really appreciative of.
0: So what happened? Um... In that, that that year in LA, like what, what was it about the work you were doing or the place you were living or the people you were meeting that l- relit that spark within you?
2: yeah, there was there was a lot of wounding, I think, from my upbringing in the church, but particularly, you know, while I was in school, um, there was a, a, a mass shooting in in Virginia, and that's kind of what prompted a lot of my questioning, my own discernment around faith. And so I was carrying a lot of those, that struggle with me as a young man, as a young adult. Hmm. And my faith tradition didn't really offer me the opportunity to dig into those, the hurt and to really find a way to get through it and find the answers that I needed and the connection to God that I needed. And when I was in L.A. for my year of service and when I was
3: getting more involved with the Episcopal Church, there was just a sense of openness to not knowing, to really wrestling
2: with questions of who God is and how God moves. Mm -hmm. And the Anglican tradition really just provided a platform for me to do the work that I needed to do spiritually. And so, you know, I, I wasn't really looking for a way back to my Christian faith, but the Episcopal church showed up for me in that way.
3: Hmm. And, and I'm then am that...
2: in the diocese now. So.
0: Oh yeah. yeah. Tell me about that. Because then that year of service ended and then,
2: then what? Yeah. I, I spent my year of service working with students at a, an alternative school in in southern pasadena and so it was all you know young people who had been expelled from their previous schools because of you know trouble with the law or you know some violence and so i spent a year really serving that population and getting to know them and just learning how to love people and care for people where they are and show up for them when they need you and i was hired on at my service site and you know continued that work i was an art teacher for a little while there because i've got a background with graphic design and i was invited after a couple of years of working for the school to get connected with the service program that i had been a part of and to serve as kind of a chaplain and coordinator with the the service program. And so that was really my way of just continuing my connection to the Episcopal tradition. The year we spent in L.A. doing service, we we also were connected to an Episcopal church here in Hollywood. And, you know, it was a really quirky community. It's the one that I met Holly through and Mm. really family-oriented and very small community. And most of its kind of worship is centered around dialogue. So our Sunday liturgy is a low church version of, of Anglican liturgy, but we have intentional dialogue after every sermon. And so, you know, I was able to really do that work of of really wrestling through my questions and my doubt and my my hurt with the congregation. And so, you know, that really left me with a sense of connection to the Episcopal tradition as a whole, because it really ushered me into that space. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I, I, after my year of service, that was just kind of the first step on a path towards where I am now, where, you know, I went from really wrestling with my faith understandings to a point where I'm doing everything that I can to give other folks space and opportunity and as much guidance as I can offer in asking meaningful questions and searching for answers that really fit.
0: Hmm. Now what you've talked about so far doesn't uh, scream to me, nature and the outdoors. (laughs) It sounds like a pretty gritty urban ministry environment. And even, you know, as you pursued pursued theological studies in Claremont, I mean, I will tell you that I loved my three years in Pasadena in seminary. I was single. I was in my early 20s. You know, maybe maybe a similar kind of experience that you had. I... Did youth ministry in a church that was that had a pretty rough youth group, you know, kids mm-hmm. from the neighborhood in Pasadena. And I loved it and I loved the work I did. And I loved going to I loved living in Los Angeles for three years, but man, I I mean, I didn't, I couldn't get out of there fast enough yeah. on my last day of classes because mm-hmm. I uh it was just the city life, man. It wasn't for me. Um, so how, yeah? Then walk us over this bridge from uh, from from gritty urban ministry to the
2: outdoors. Yeah, I think that's why I'm still in Southern California. Just because you're absolutely right. You know that experience was very much centered in the city, very much centered in kind of this urban environment. But what I love about California is that you just have so much access to nature uh, in every sort. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, the ocean is, is a minute's drive if there's no traffic and you can get into some beautiful national forest. My wife and I live in a tiny home, an old converted hunting cabin right on the edge of the Angeles National Forest now and you know if you want to see the snow you can drive up to the mountains and they're not too far away so you know like i mentioned you know i was raised with this deep appreciation and love for nature and it was a really important part of who i am and so you know i continue to be a hiker through that period mm-hmm. you know now i hike really regularly i'm a trail runner climber and so You know, the connection between where I was there and my work and my ministry now when it comes to the outdoors. About five or six years ago, there was an op-ed in the LA Times. Um, Stephen Asma, he's a writer, um, talks about kind of faith and religion in in America. And he had an op-ed just exploring the trends of organized religion and the way that Gen Z and millennials are responding to it.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And, you know, Asma's kind of Suggested that this generation or these generations were embracing all of the kind of fluff of religion, the magical and mystical thinking, and leaving aside the communal aspects of Mm -hmm. organized religion. So he's saying that as a
0: criticism, I I, I take it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and that just didn't sit right with me. You know, I think Mm. we all, both acknowledging the polling and then just anecdotally, we know that organized religion is on the decline socially and, and just within our society. And so, but for me, just reflecting on what he had to say, applying my own conversations with folks and my own studies, it was
3: really clear that it's not that that generation was rejecting this communal space. It was really just rejecting the
2: way that space had been offered to them and the way that they'd been welcomed into it. Hmm. And so that really opened a door for me to reflect on well, how, how do I connect with community? And more importantly, I think it made me think, how do I connect with God? And the answer to that question was, in nature, I mm-hmm. connect with God when I'm on a trail, when I'm alone in the woods or walking with a group of friends. I connect with God most clearly and profoundly in those spaces. And I have heard that in my conversations with folks again and again and again, and I had at that time as well. And so from all of that reflection, it just opened this door for me of asking, why doesn't the church meet these folks where they are? And that's really what made me kind of explore what it would look like to provide space for for people who connect with God in the outdoors. Mm -hmm.
0: I happen to know, because I've uh, been doing some work on this lately, um, that among nuns, so those, and for for listeners, I'll spell it out, N-O-N-E-S, that is those who claim no religious affiliation on surveys, which is the fastest growing uh, segment in the American religious landscape, fifty-eight percent of those people, Peyton, say that they feel a connection to the divine when they are in nature. They, they feel a special spiritual connection to creation. Yeah, which you know they don't agree on much. Uh, nuns. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like twenty-five percent of them pray, but over half believe in God still and and over half find meaning or connection to creation and nature, which I think is noteworthy. And it's I think it's exactly right what you've what you've seen. But let me ask you to answer your own question, why isn't the church meeting those needs? Why do you think the church is um, um, almost an exclusively
2: indoors space.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for
2: me, you know, I approach this from, from my own Christian tradition. And I think the church broadly, and, and definitely denominations like mine in the Episcopal tradition, we've organized our experience of, of God around our Sunday worship in sanctuaries. hmm And that is to the detriment of meeting people where they are. We really want to meet people and invite them into our space, not meet people and provide space for them where they are to see and connect with God. And I think that there's a rich history in the church of of doing the latter, Of, of I think that the the gospel narratives of Jesus' own ministry demonstrates that that the Christian church is rooted in this idea of going to where people are, where they feel spirit move, and being with them in that space. And and for me, the church has moved away from that. Uh, The Christian tradition has really isolated itself in in our sanctuaries, and we're surprised that people don't join us there. Hmm. But there's there's just so much baggage that comes with these buildings. And, you know, I mean that in multiple senses, you know, I, I think there's baggage on an operational level when we're thinking about all that it takes to maintain a church building, but also just the history of the Christian church that is really written into the stones of every church, you know, and the ways that, Our institution has not always been welcoming to people Mm -hmm. and has not always
3: dealt wisely and fairly with different groups of people. And so for me, sitting in that, acknowledging that, I wanted to be part of a movement to take that out of the equation, to say... I want to I want to have a relationship with you.
2: I want to have meaningful conversation and I know where God is because I know where where I experience God. And if you experience God in similar places to where I experience God, let's meet there. And mm. and let's have an experience together that is sacred and helps us to grow in relationship, in love, in wisdom and and that i think is what you know my ministry has been about ever since
3: hmm.
0: yeah i i buy all that and the the one thing i don't get that you got to convince me of is why los angeles man because <laughs> uh, it's you know uh, wilderness nature the outdoors that's not what people think of when they think of southern california what they think of is what I mean, what is there? Thirty million people live between Santa Barbara and the border with Mexico. It's it's like one, it, it's almost like one nonstop city down that coast. And well, you and I are recording this just after these in, incredible torrential rains, yeah, that have done extraordinary damage, and yet still don't seem to be making a real dent in the ongoing drought. -hmm. In Southern California, and you just at a certain point, uh, it you just look at that and go like that ecosystem, uh, you know Mm -hmm. that it 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 cannot sustain that number of human beings living there. So, I mean, I'm not like telling you you should move, but I'm I'm (laughs) a little bit asking you this ethical question of somebody who's committed. To creation, care, and nature, how do you how do you justify living in that place that is so overrun with people? That I mean, there's like running out of water, you know. Yeah. Um, Trap. <laughs> I used to tell friends. I used to tell friends, and this is in the '90s, man. I'd be like, if you want, if people would, you know, college buddies would like fly out to see me in California, and I'd say, I will pick you up between 10 p.m. And six a.m., but that's it. Otherwise, you got to get yourself to Pasadena because I'm not going to spend four hours round trip sitting in uh, traffic.
3: Um, I hear that. Yeah. So,
0: anyway, like, tell me about that. Talk about that. Um, the the choices that you you and your wife have made.
3: Yeah. No,
2: I don't. I don't see this discrepancy between. The region where I live and the work that I do, I don't see it necessarily as this barrier or this obstacle or this problem to overcome. Really, I think that my local ecosystem here in Southern California needs the work and ministry that I'm doing and that I'm doing with a lot of wonderful partners, very much for the reasons that you're outlining here. You know, the fact that we have congregated in these spaces with so many people to the point where we're exhausting our resources. That in itself invites us to rethink the way we live, to make the, rethink the decisions that we make, and I think there's a theological element to that. Mm-hmm. There's a spiritual element to those questions and to the responses that we. That we have for those questions. And so, you know, even though the coast is is really urbanized and overrun with our population, Southern California's landscape is gorgeous. And there's so much beautiful pockets of, of nature and creation that we can access if we step out into it. Now the sad thing for me is that not everyone has that opportunity and that's something yeah. that I wrestle with a lot. Okay. And you know, I want to make sure that as I'm building my ministry and as I'm working in partnership with local denominations and organizations that a lot of our work is focused on access. What does it look like for folks who are in these urban spaces? who don't have access to ready transportation, they can get out of the city a little bit. Yeah, And a lot of times it's a 30-minute drive maximum. And that's even with traffic. Mm-hmm. But for so many folks, that's just not realistic. It's just not something that crosses their minds. And it's not something that's presented to them as an opportunity. And so for me, I know this is where my ministry should take place. Because there's people like you who have been here and have this deep connection with nature and want and crave that experience and and need it for their own well-being and for their spiritual wholeness. And there's folks like that population that we're talking about who just haven't had the chance to engage that and to recognize The beauty of creation and the way that the Spirit moves in those places. And so my work is connecting the dots there, bringing together the people who know and who already recognize that, oh, this is—I may not feel God in a church. That may not be where, you know, Spirit moves me, where my soul is just nourished. But nature is. And then those folks who have never really even been in those spaces where you're so
3: struck with awe and reverence that you know there's something deeper present here. There's something moving in this space, whether you call
2: it God or spirit, the divine, you recognize that when you're just stunned into silence. Hmm. And and that's what that's what I want to be about is introducing people to those moments and those spaces that bring us to our knees.
3: Hmm.
0: Well, tell me then a, a story or two about and and you might use the this as an opportunity to talk about all wanderers. um, you know, or to talk about the Center for Spirituality and Nature and your your organizational life, your your working ministry life. But like, how how are you doing that? Can you can you give me an anecdote or two of of success stories or failure stories, or how, you know how you're trying and and learning on the job about how to get people connected to nature, particularly in Southern California?
2: Yeah it's It's definitely been a struggle, you know on on many levels, just because this is not something that is common practice within our faith tradition. Mm-hmm. And so it feels novel to the point that folks are really encouraging, and they'll tell they'll tell me, you know, this is wonderful. This is exactly what the church needs. But it's just it becomes kind of just this interesting idea rather than something that could really build momentum and something to direct resources towards mm-hmm. and so you know it's been difficult to build up this community and it's been beautiful to see it develop so you know it we started about 5 years ago with all wanderers and our first hike was you know up in the San Gabriel mountains it was a waterfall hike we had about 25 folks who came
3: out And hikes with us okay and the
2: whole model of all wanderers is anyone's welcome we're gonna walk together we're gonna appreciate our local ecosystem we're gonna build relationship and we're gonna have meaningful dialogue and so we walk together these 25 folks we get to the waterfall and we have this just incredible moment where these 25 folks from different backgrounds, all
3: different age groups are stunned just observing rushing water in Southern California. Hmm.
2: And at the time it was, it was right after some rains. And so, and it was one of those kind of drizzly days that it, it really was a striking sight. And from there, after we take the time to just be reverent, We put down blankets and mats. We sit down and we talk. And so, you know, I send out resources. We have gatherings once a month. And those resources kind of give us a guide for our conversation, just a starting point or something to kind of bring us to that spiritual space. We start to talk. And as we talk, my wife and I bring out a round loaf of sourdough bread, just a big old loaf of bread. And boxes of wine. And it is, I'm not an ordained minister. And so this is not sacramental, but right. we know for a fact it is sacred. Okay, And so we pass the loaf of bread around and every person just takes a chunk of
3: bread and pours themselves a little glass of wine as we talk. Hmm. And that experience of breaking bread together listening
2: to each other and having really deep and intentional conversations in this incredible location it changes something in you it it sits somewhere in your soul in the in the best way and so even though the next month you know we went from 25 folks to maybe 12 folks those 12 folks have been pretty consistent members of our community
3: mm-hmm. for five years. Mm-hmm.
2: And so we have anywhere from eight to 15 people every single month go through that process.
3: Mm.
2: We meet at, at a trailhead, we walk, we talk, we listen to each other. And then we have conversations about things that matter. And I just feel like all too often in our Contemporary context, we don't have the chance to really dig in and have conversations about things that matter.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: There's not a lot of spaces where that happens organically and naturally, and so this is that space for a lot of people, and and I'm incredibly proud of that and excited about the possibilities for that. And so that's kind of my connection point to my work now with the Center for Spirituality and Nature, because I met. Dr. Norcross, who is the executive director of the organization in New Mexico at a conference. And, you know, luckily I got the opportunity just a few years after meeting her to apply for a position with the organization as the spiritual communities director. And that's what I've been doing for the last year. And really my work with the center is about building a community of communities like all wanderers, Mm -hmm. communities that meet regularly in nature for spiritual practice and spiritual deepening and really connecting with their local ecosystems and with God in those spaces and with one another. Mm -hmm. And so the past year has just been this tremendous experience for me of meeting other folks who are doing work like what I do with All Wanderers or who want to do that work. And then having conversations about what it looks like to be in community with each other And to grow this movement. Hmm. And so, you know, I've really just through the Center been offered this opportunity to really demonstrate for individuals, but also for denominations and faith traditions, how important this work is and how exciting this environment is. When we're looking at declining interest in organized religion, Mm -hmm. you know, these are spaces where folks want to be on a Sunday morning or a Saturday afternoon. We don't have to beg them.
3: They want to be there because it's an incredible experience of witnessing creation
2: and feeling the movement of spirit and being amongst friends. And that's what the church was and has been for so long. long. And you know we we haven't done a great job of adapting mm-hmm. over the course of the last few years and this is i think a great ad- adaptation if it, it
0: the this is more for listeners than you know you, you'll probably object to this analogy but then in all wanderers is like the equivalent of a local church congregation and the center for spirituality and nature is the equivalent of a denomination that's networking and connecting different local, um, congregations. But
2: yeah, to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean,
0: I, I, I get, I get that it's an imperfect analogy, but, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's not like stuff like it's not, it's not like stuff like this hasn't been tried before. And I, you know, right. I was a part of a, Movement to start new churches that were very different than the churches that had gone before us, and we were trying to tap into the dissatisfaction and uh, disaffection among our my generation, which is Gen Xers, with the church, both evangelical and mainline, and we had a pretty good ten year run, but it ultimately ran out of gas. Um, And I learned a lot in that, but I probably also got a bit cynical because of how hard we worked and how sure we were that we were onto something and doing something valuable and important. And it turned out that it just wasn't that valuable to people in an era where people just aren't that interested in being involved in faith communities. So I wonder, um, I'm just, I just wonder, I, you know, I'm not dooming you guys to failure by any means. I'm just (laughs) asking like, how do you, you must be confronting that. And one of the questions I have for you is like, how do you, how do you build a movement that is basically non-sectarian in nature? And that is, you're not a, you're a practice-based movement, not a belief-based movement, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, obviously at the core, there's some belief that we can be in touch with the divine and the transcendent in nature, which is yeah. a belief I share with you, okay? Mm-hmm. But um, how many... Americans, do you think are going to be okay with like that's it? It's a super low bar of belief. But it's more about the practice of like getting out in nature and connecting with the divine that way. I, I'm just I want it to work, but I'm like I'm, I'm worried that it won't work. And I, I'm I'm sh- I'm sure you've spent a lot of time thinking about this. So like how where does that fit in? And maybe this is even um, where we can talk a little bit about the resources that process theology provides for you, um, in, in thinking about how, you know, how we make this work.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I appreciate everything that you're communicating there. And
2: I appreciate your connection to building communities like this, you know, because what was wonderful, what has been wonderful in the past few years is my own growth in all of this. Coming from a place where, you know, I was convinced as a young man, as a younger man, at least, that I was the only one who had had this brilliant idea. (laughs) And, of course, I was was swiftly corrected in that thinking. And that opened up so many opportunities then to learn from the folks who have been there before. (laughs) And to learn from the ways that this is already a part of the Christian tradition. And so I've been able to go from this place where I was convinced that I was on the cutting edge to this place where I know that I'm not doing anything new, but this is a renewed way of pursuing something that's entrenched in our tradition. And so for me, you know, to respond to your question of how much people want this, how interested people are in this sort of offering and opportunity, you know, I'm not... I'm not fixed in my thinking that this sort of community is the new way, is, or is the way, full stop, of approaching faith and spirituality in our contemporary era. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even necessarily believe that. But I do know that it is a renewed way of doing that. And yeah. I know that there are many folks who are interested in it. And that's why I don't want to go about this work trying to supplant anything that's already established. Hmm. That's never what I've been about, and luckily that's not what the center is about. We're not trying to tear down the walls of the church and allow nature to take over. We're trying to invite the people who don't connect with God in
3: the way that they want in the church into a space where perhaps they can connect with God or the divine. And Mm -hmm. so
2: that gives me a lot of freedom. And it gives me a lot of hope that even if the All Wanderers community remains 8 to 15 people, I know once a month, twice a month, this community does something that matters to that group of people. And that's enough for me. Hmm. And, you know, I, the work that I do with the center is really about building this community of communities. And what I've seen in that is that there are dozens and more than dozens when you put all the folks who are in this space doing this work, even the work of building networks. When you add it all together, you see that there is a tremendous amount of folks who connect with God in nature and the outdoors. And so if we can then really nourish and cultivate those spaces locally and connect to one another on a broader level, on a
3: broader scale, that builds to something significant. And we can do that work
2: alongside what could be considered more traditional ways of worship or spiritual deepening mhm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I like that and I I appreciate that what you're saying you're not out to supplant or replace the work that our friend Holly does as a as a episcopal priest in a traditional parish even though, you know, those kind of faith experiences seem to be kind of dying, you know, right before our eyes. Um I wonder about this as being on kind of the front edge of a new movement um and and building kind of a new quasi-religious organization especially as somebody who grew up in the southern baptist church um how do you guard against spiritual abuse in an organization i mean like okay so what holly does our friend holly will use as an yeah. example like she's a parish priest she's been through seminary, it took her like six years to get ordained because the Episcopal process is very thorough. It includes psychological evaluations and, you know, you got to be an intern and do all this other stuff. And then even as a parish priest, she's overseen by a bishop and there's a church council and things like this. in the organization I was a part of, the Emerging Church Movement, not an organization really, more of a movement, and what you're doing, there's there's much less of that. It's much more what we'd call, you already referred to the term low church. Um, you grew up in that kind con- of congregationalist polity. And of course, mm. what the Southern Baptist Convention these days is known for, sadly, is spiritual abuse. Um, yeah. And so, how do you guard against that? as As you attempt to bring these communities together around a, a shared love of you know finding God in nature,
3: yeah, I think it's a really complex question, and it's something that we're
2: certainly sensitive to. It's something that we're really cautious around,
3: and it's definitely something that deserves a lot of our attention yeah and so for me i i mean i have to do
2: that sort of work internally as well hmm. as i think all spiritual leaders do of ensuring that we're not we're not becoming figures of abuse um, on any level you know physical mental spiritual yeah and so a lot of that work is done by the spiritual leader in partnership and collaboration with with the folks who love and care for them and their mentors, and I, and that's just speaking from my from my own experience. Yeah. When it comes to a broader network of communities like what we're forming, you know, relationship is essential,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and so the fact that. My work is about building relationship with these leaders
3: means that I have to be constantly attuned to potential flags that might
2: suggest that there's possibility for malpractice or abuse. And so it's not something that can be easily addressed, but it's something that we have to hold close at heart as we're doing this work. Now, I will say that when you're talking about building community in the outdoors, you know a lot of that work is done in large groups or larger groups, which in itself offers kind of a, a environment of accountability to one another. And without the buildings, in some sense, in some sense, there's less there's less for lack of a better term, dark spaces where Mm. spiritual abuse can easily occur. Um, Now, that's not to say that it doesn't or that it can't in the outdoors or in nature, because we know that it does. But, you know, it's just something that we kind of confront from the place of relationship and from the place Mm of being attentive, holding ourselves accountable, and being willing to hold our friends and loved ones accountable.
0: Well, I appreciate you answering that. It's I and I know it's kind of an unanswerable question, and it's a tough one. And there is no way, of course, to totally safeguard uh, against that. But it's just it is something that all of us who are in any position of spiritual authority right now, whether it's in a traditional. Um, you know organized religious setting or trying to do something new like I think both you and I are we just have to have it front of mind yes um, because yes. the damage that's been done to the sacred by you know unsavory actors is well it's 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 well known now by everybody um absolutely let's talk a little bit about process theology and i don't want (laughs) to i mean it's process theology for those who don't know um is maybe it's a hundred years old or so um it's like it's hard to describe it's it's quite complex i think there's a lot you can get really deep in the weeds on it um And obviously, we've got some overlap with my dear friend Trip Fuller, who's probably, you know, arguably after John Cobb, you know, maybe he's the second most famous process theologian in the world right now. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Who, who also uh, got his he got his PhD at Claremont, Um, but I just wonder. You know, without asking you to give us a primer on what is process theology, more like what are the tools that process theology gave you that have been valuable in your work?
3: Yeah, I mean, just the the work that John Cobb has done with process thought
2: has been really instrumental for me because I think John Cobb's approach to process philosophy and process theology has always had an ecological element to it yeah. and even an, an environmental element to it. And so that really gave me an opportunity to study eco-theology at Claremont with some intention. And a lot of what I focused on in my seminary education was the ways that spirituality overlaps with ecological thinking and even with kind of environmental practice. And so, you know, for for those who are getting kind of a grasp on process theology or don't have much foundation in process thought it's really this understanding that all things are in this process of becoming mm-hmm. and and that includes god
3: and for me that is a really freeing understanding to think of god as more than fixed to think of god as greater even than what i
2: could imagine because i think that's that's one of the shortcomings of of traditional theology is that we try to we try to describe god or explain god
3: and if god is fixed you can theoretically do that Mm -hmm. in process thought
2: you can explain God in a moment, perhaps, in in you know, one of these series of events that are occurring constantly. But God, God's self is in this process of becoming alongside each of us as entities. And so, you know, the, what I love about process is just that freedom. And what I love about kind of my studies at Claremont is that a lot of it was able to be connected to, you know, my appreciation for creation and creation care. And so, you know, my first semester at, at Claremont, I studied with uh, Dr. Philip Clayton, and it was all, the course was centered around new ideas for future civilization and how spirituality is involved in that discussion. And so much of that is is kind of stemming from John Cobb's warnings about climate crisis decades ago Mm -hmm. and so as the world changes how do we as people of faith and faith leaders respond to that and so i think process itself gives us some tools but i think more than anything it opens up the opportunity and the invitation to Bend the rules (laughs) to -hmm. to view to view the world. I mean, we we approach the world a little bit more from the the understanding of panentheism, and so they're not necessarily overlapping process theology and panentheism. But we definitely recognize kind of this divine spark in every entity, and so Mm -hmm. if if we do that, if we do view the world in that way, we have to view some of our
3: actions as unconscionable, and we have to then have a sense of responsibility for care for loving relationship and then we also have to have a sense of awe and reverence for every single thing
2: that makes up our universe
0: yeah i i, I would seem to me uh, you know a lot of christians would probably agree with the statement um there's not a bright line between humanity and the rest of creation like we've often thought you know i've Been giving talks recently in which i uh you know show an image of a famous lithograph or engraving of um the uh great chain of being from the middle ages you know um god and then the angels and then the pope and then the priests and then human beings and then animals and then plants and then rocks um and I and people laugh. They're like, yeah, that's ridiculous. <laughs> we don't think that anymore. I'm like, yeah, you still look up when you, you know, you, an NFL player still like looks up and points up <laughs> when he scores a touchdown. Like God is up there and we're down here. So it it's yeah. it's, it's it's a persistent uh mental framework for us. Yeah. Um but but I think most people probably most Christians these days would be like, yeah we're human beings are animals and we're, you know, there's a diff there's differences, but there's more similarities than there are differences. Um, But the, the, the step further, that process theology takes is like, yeah. and there's also no difference between God and this creation or the becoming of creation. I mean, that's not, yeah. it's not strictly panentheism, but it's this, it's more of God is, a verb like god the the becoming of creation the evolution of creation that's what god is and there there's no differentiation god isn't this external outside other sovereign force but god is you know deeply involved to to the point that you couldn't probably really um unweave the blanket between god and the becoming of creation
2: yeah and That's that's really what fascinates me, and what I really value about process thought is because it's really, it's rooted in relational thinking. Mm -hmm. Because when we we talk about God as becoming, and we talk about the way that God, there's there's an understanding in process thought that that it is true that God, we can say God created the world, and it's as much true, it's just as true to say that the world is actively creating God
3: mm-hmm.
2: that creation is creating God. And that to me is this beautiful encapsulation of relationship and, and it's not it doesn't operate completely outside of our scripture tradition either, written scripture when we look at the cosmology outlined in Genesis and we look at the way that that God breathes things into life whether through the spoken word or through gathering dust and literally breathing life into humankind you know that act of creation is at its core essence relationship
3: mm-hmm.
2: and i think process does offers some interesting approaches to examining that mm-hmm. what does it look like to be in relationship with god to be in relationship with Creation and how is this beautiful tapestry of connection moving and present in our in our lives now
3: hmm. and in each moment that that will never cease to excite me. Hmm. Well,
0: I really appreciate it. Um, what you've said, and I, I'm sure it has captured the imagination of some listeners. If if people out there wanted to follow up on this with you, I mean, to, to gather a, a, a community in their neck of the woods and connect with you, what would be a couple steps people could
2: take? Yeah, we're really active right now at the center, just partnering as much as possible with individuals and organizations in this work. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we've got a really exciting partnership with the Episcopal Church, you know, thanks just to my connection to the Episcopal Church, where we're walking with a group of communities from origin to, you know, sustained practice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're doing a lot of that work this year of exploring opportunities to partner with other denominations organizations and folks who are really passionate about spirituality and nature so if anybody is interested in joining us in that work spirituality will take you to our website and it's got some great resources it's got you know my email listed Mm -hmm. quite prominently and a lot of my work in the past year as i've taken on this role of Uh, spiritual communities director, has been just Zoom meetings, uh, just talking to folks who are passionate about this, who are intrigued by it, and who want to get started in in community weaving and providing space and opportunity for folks to really have this experience of spiritual formation in nature. And so, you know, folks can always kind of find my contact through the website and can learn more about our spirituality and nature Mm -hmm. groups And some of the resources that we've put out over the years that really help folks to access this for themselves, whether it's, you know, educational resources or just opportunities to get involved at an event close to you.
0: Well, that's awesome. I hope some people do take you up on that. And, uh, yeah, I'll I'll keep keep in touch and and keep track of your work because I... I mean, I think your instinct is right. I do think that as organized religion falls apart around us, I do think that uh, people are going to continue to seek to have that that spiritual part of their lives fulfilled. and And for a great many people, that's going to take place outdoors.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And the more we can provide opportunities and spaces for folks, I think the more accessible it is. And so... That's that's my focus and I'm I'm glad that we're sharing that work. Awesome.
0: Well thanks. Thanks for coming
2: on. Yeah, I appreciate it, Tom.